Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And today it's just us. Amit and I wanted to try one, just the two of us. We thought that was a good opportunity to cover a topic that we've kind of danced around a little bit in some of the interviews. And we thought, why don't we dive into it this time? So what we want to talk about today is some common claims and misconceptions, and specifically around this notion of harassment and what kind of harassment in the workplace is actionable, what's not what's just sort of someone's mean to you and how we want to use that as a way to dovetail into a conversation about even when somebody comes to us with a harassment claim that maybe we can't fix, what are some other ways we can sometimes help people? And I think before I let Amit take it away on that, I, I want to say, you know, during our interview with Catherine Simmons-Gill, she mentioned a phrase that I really like. She said, you know, a lot of what we do sometimes, no one's retiring with some exception on what we're able to win them in these cases, but it's often about helping people find some dignity and helping them transition into their next stage in life and making the loss of that job a little bit less traumatic and feel a little less awful financially and otherwise. So today's going to be about how do we do that when what you come to us for when you think you're being harassed or discriminated against, how can we help you make that change as a, as a field? So, well, and that's a, a really important point too, that I want to just highlight a little bit. A lot of our job sometimes isn't necessarily even the legal component. It's uh, making sure we kind of understand the situation folks are coming to us in. You're either going to be dealing with people who financially are going to be in a lot of distress based on what's happening to their employment. It's emotionally very difficult. You may also be dealing with a different end of the spectrum, which is highly successful folks who are going through kind of a unique situation for the first time in their lives. So these things are very emotional for a host of different reasons that sometimes we sometimes can't understand, but should understand or at least emphasize with. And I think that's a really important factor too, even if there's not something legally we can do. And I think that's a really good way to put it because, I mean, you take somebody on either side of the spectrum, perhaps somebody who's low income or is really hurting for money, like there are obvious reasons why this situation is so stressful and upsetting, independent of the horrible situation they've been going through at work. Forget whether it's legal or not. If your boss is screaming at you every day, you know, or being really abusive to you, whether or not it's actionable, that still messes you up and you're still traumatized. But on the other side of it, maybe you are somebody who's coming from more money and is not used to this sort of level of stress and hasn't had to have a lot of interaction with the legal system. And it's, it's really stressful for other reasons. So, you know, knowing, knowing where your client is coming from and helping meet on their level and understand where they're coming from will sometimes help us understand why certain issues that don't obviously make sense to us because they don't they don't touch on what we think is most important legally why our clients are so fixated on some of that stuff a hundred percent i mean part of it too is you know you and i are dealing with a pandemic and different life stuff but so are people who are calling us and going through difficult employment situations. So I just think what Catherine said definitely is incredibly important. We just have to be cognizant of kind of the emotional side of these employment uh, situations. And so with that, I think the, the first place to start with these things is kind of Title VII or the state equivalent to Human Rights Act. Both of these are federal and state laws that do similar things, which is basically prevents an employer from treating a person differently 
but it it's based on being in a protected class. And I think that's a pretty important misconception sometimes. Talk for one more second, Amit, because I actually want to pull up for a moment the Human Rights Act protected categories because yep. it's really, it's, really broad and it covers a lot more than federal law does. No, that's 100% true. It's, it's broader both in terms of, I think, remedies, in terms of who it covers, categories of folks it covers. So that's definitely true. There are nuances to the process in the sense of Title VII, you have to go through potentially a different agency, potentially, I guess you can cross file stuff. Some of the stuff we don't have to get into the weeds about. But that's, I think, the main gist is these protect someone in a protected class from being treated differently. And I think the the part where it's tricky sometimes is a boss can be a jerk or mean or do things wrong. They could just be bad at their jobs, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's a legal claim. Right. I mean, they can even be, you know, one of the things that a lot of potential clients or, or even clients struggle with is the excuse that is given for their firing is objectively incorrect. You know, they're fired over something that is in a document, you know, maybe a performance improvement plan, a write-up, or just a termination letter that is just factually inaccurate. But the key is it doesn't have to be correct. It's just that the person making the decision has to believe it to be. They just can't be motivated by the negative, the, the protected category that you fall into a retaliatory animus. So clients really struggle with that because they'll sit there trying to walk us through why what they're being accused of or what they're being what what negative things are being thrown at them are wrong. And it's hard to tell somebody, I believe everything you're saying, everything you're saying is probably true, but it doesn't matter. And here's why. That that's really challenging for folks. So so well I'm at covered for me for a moment, I pulled up this wonderful cheat sheet from from Westlaw that I've got that I always like to have theoretically accessible on my computer. And it compares Illinois state and federal anti-discrimination laws. So we're just going to pick Title VII in the Human Rights Act today, because like we said in our first episode, we could do this all day. And there's a lot of these different laws we could kind of pick apart. Oh, for, yeah, for sure. Because like, for example, there is a Cook County ordinance or the city of Chicago version, etc. So it goes on and on. One thing I want to do before we got into some of the, the, the cheat sheet stuff is it's not just sometimes clients struggle with it. I think it's across the board because... and. Catherine discussed this too in our podcast. Sometimes you don't have like a simple email which says, hey, we're going to separate you because of your protected class status. And so judges are also human and you're, you know, they struggle with this, attorneys struggle with this. You're trying to build a mosaic of evidence and information to highlight the, the separate treatment. And that's, you know, there's a lot of gray there. There is, and I'm smiling at Amit using that term mosaic because there's a legal test for proving discrimination that our circuit, the Seventh Circuit, recently struck down that mosaic test and and even basically chastised all the judges who had gotten it wrong for so many years and were like, you guys don't understand this. Here's how this is actually supposed to work, which is a great way of kind of pointing out that even these employment tests are incredibly complicated and even judges get them wrong from time to time. Yeah, basically the case, the way it reads is like, you just have to look at stuff holistic, at least the way I'm understanding it just off the top of my head. It's just, you have to look at the evidence realistically and determine, did the protected class status likely impact the employment decision? Yeah. Is it more likely it not based on the totality of circumstances that something discriminatory happened here, basically? And, you know, it used to be there was this sort of split between direct and indirect evidence. And sometimes they wouldn't consider some evidence, but they'd consider other evidence. And this decision, this Ortiz decision that we're sort of alluding to, and I think it was in 2017, basically says no more of this nonsense. You consider everything, you look at it all together and you say, is it more likely than not that this was discrimination? Okay. So, you know, that's a good segue on it into the thing, that chart I wanted to pull up and comparing the state and federal law here. So 
Abed alluded to Title VII. So we're talking about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And that law protects people in, in the context of employment based on race, based on color, based on religion, and based on sex and national origin. Now, with respect to sex, I want to mention that for one moment, because until last summer, summer of 2020, it was an open question whether sex included gender identity or sexual orientation. And Thankfully, last summer, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, both gender identity and sexual orientation are covered as, as sex, so you cannot be discriminated against legally under federal law on the basis of those categories either. Now, state law is actually a, a fair amount broader than that, the Human Rights Act. Now, there are different federal laws that cover a lot of these different areas, but there's no one federal law that covers all of them. So under Illinois law, on the other hand, you, it's illegal to discriminate against somebody or you're in a protected class based on your race, your color, your religion, your sex, your national origin, your ancestry, your age, your order of protection status, meaning do you have an order of protection in place protecting you from somebody who's stalking you or abusing you, your marital status, or are you divorced or single or married, physical or mental disability, military status, sexual orientation, including gender-related identity, unfavorable discharge from the military. So were you court-martialed or, or I guess asked not to leave? I admittedly, I'm not in the military, so there, there might be other terms I'm missing. Citizenship status, arrest record, and expunged or sealed convictions, language spoken by employees and communications unrelated to their duties, and pregnancy. And that includes childbirth and related medical conditions. One thing I want to touch upon too here is prior to that Supreme Court decision, you know, folks in Illinois are a little bit more fortunate because we have a pretty broad Human Rights Act that Max just went through, but some states don't. And so if there is no federal protection and there's no state law equivalent, in a lot of states until the Supreme Court decision last summer, someone could be separated based on sexual orientation. And so that's why that's a landmark decision is because now you have a lot more uniformity at the federal level when you don't necessarily have every state following suit. Which is important because maybe you live in our circuit, the Seventh Circuit, and if you live in Illinois, maybe you are more likely to be protected there than you would be if you lived in Indiana, which is in our federal circuit, or maybe the Seventh Circuit, you're safe. But if you if you go down to the Sixth Circuit or the Fourth Circuit, maybe you're not, you know, so it, it's nice to have uniform federal law. Doesn't mean the outcome is always going to be favorable to plaintiffs and Quite frankly, I think it's usually to the contrary, but it does mean if you can prove it uh, that that was the form of discrimination, you are protected. So let's let's talk about harassment. That was the thing that Professor Gonzalez brought up that really brought you and I to the table today and, and was the topic we wanted to cover. Can you talk a little bit like what do we mean by harassment? What is protected and what isn't? Yeah, and I think this is it's difficult sometimes. Again, like we talked about before in terms of figuring out why something is happening. So harassment could just be berating someone. Obviously, sexual harassment is easier to understand. But outside of that, it could be just yelling at someone, berating them, just treating them differently, oscillating them in the workplace, isolating them, just doing a bunch of different stuff to make their employment kind of miserable, to make the job miserable. And there's a bunch of different ways to do that. The problem where the rubber meets the road is all of the harassment from a legal standpoint would have to be tied to one of the buckets that Max mentioned earlier. So it'd have to be tied to someone's gender or parental status or sexual orientation or religion. But if it's just you have a jerk who treats everyone poorly in the workplace, that's, that's not going to be protected under the law. And in fact, that's actually a defense in our circuit, the equal opportunity harasser defense. And I've seen it asserted where you have a boss who's just a jerk to everybody, just verbally abusive, just rude to every human being they come into contact with at work. And maybe you feel like they're, you're getting picked on, but 
I mean, I have literally worked on cases like that where the defense is, no, they do this to everybody. And you have witnesses who work for this person in the weird spot because normally witnesses will never throw their boss under the bus. But in this case, they are. But in a way that's favorable, they're like, yeah, no, he screams at everybody. But, you know, equally, he calls everybody this thing, you know. Yep, exactly. And so those are some of the most difficult situations because you sympathize with the person, but at the same time, or with the potential client or the client, and it's a place where I personally would not want to work. And I think it's a bad business, but that doesn't mean necessarily there's um, a legal claim there. Yeah. I mean, you may not have an option. It also may mean, look, it is what it is. I mean, I want to focus on this topic for one moment because I had a case several years ago that I think is a good example of how sometimes it's not quite as obvious. Sometimes it's not as clear as, you know, somebody using an obvious racial slur or ethnic slur or, or sexual, you know, not in a sexual context, the boss groping somebody or using really inappropriate language or, you know, in a sexual harassment case, it can also be verbally abusive language. If, you know, if you have a boss who's using gender specific, it, it's not necessarily sexual uh, in nature, but it's gender motivated. And it's somebody calling women really derogatory terms or, you know, homophobic remarks, something like that. But I worked on a case several years ago in a racial harassment context where it was an African-American woman worked at a fast food restaurant and she was the only African-American employee. And she didn't understand for the first couple of months she worked there, she would sort of randomly hear her coworkers start yelling out the term grape jelly. And she didn't really under grape jelly, you know, like you'd smear on PB and J and she didn't really understand what that meant. And finally, one day she asked a coworker, what are you guys talking about? Like, why are you always saying that? And she goes, the coworker said to her, Oh, well, you know how you people, every time you come in here and it was a, at this particular fast food chain, you always order grape jelly on all your food. And suddenly what she understood was that this whole time the joke was on her and they were using effectively a euphemism for like a racial slur every time. Every time an African-American customer walked into that restaurant, they were basically insulting them in front of her. And suddenly that benign term became really, really offensive and problematic. And it really changed the dynamic, you know, and it was our job as her attorneys to prove that the reason it was happening was because of her race. The good news was, you know, in that case, they weren't saying it to anybody but black folks. So it was a lot easier to establish it. It's not always that simple, but it is an example of how that can operate or how that, how racial harassment, for example, can happen in ways that are not quite as obvious. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely horrible. And that definitely highlights too why context matters. And going back to that Ortiz decision from our circuit, that's essentially what the court is saying there is, look, we can't use this mosaic test that we've been using before. We can't really, we shouldn't really focus on necessarily indirect versus direct evidence. So in this case, you have more direct evidence. You should look at things as a whole and from a totalitarian of the, of the situation to determine, is this actually influencing the employment conditions? And definitely in this standpoint, you have someone using a racial slang term, something racist in the workplace towards an employee. And I think that would definitely meet the test. All right. So that's another good segue. So let's say somebody comes to, to you or comes to me and says, you know, I'm being harassed at work and they tell us a story and, and the story, you know, is believable and it, it, it checks out. The problem is it's, it's unpleasant, it's abusive, but the harassment is just very obviously a really rude or unpleasant boss, somebody who's not a nice person, but it's probably not going to be enough for us to establish a harassment claim because it's not based on one of these obvious characteristics under state or federal law. Why not? Let's, Let's walk through how you and I would approach that situation. How do you look at that situation? So I do a lot of, I would, I'm going to call them funnel questions. So when I was in law school, I had this amazing professor for one of my classes, which 
helped me really understand how to do like depositions essentially, which is just asking questions kind of that are very broad and open-ended to the top of a funnel and then drilling down later once you have more information. And so one of the funnel questions I ask early on are stuff about wages, like have they been paid it properly, how their bonus structure works, if they're on commission, stuff like that, and let them talk a little bit. I also just ask them too generally, have you have you opposed anything in the workplace that could be seen as, you know, illegal activity? Because there was also whistleblower protections. What about you, Max? What do you try to ask? I mean, I think that's, I think you and I approach these things similarly. I, I try to start off the case, I, before I even get to the harassment, I actually like to start and just get a rundown of the workplace. Like, what do you do? How many people work there? What are your duties? How are you paid? And I, I probably start with the compensation because I want to know right off the bat, am I going to have a wage and hour claim I can assert here? You know, are you an hourly employee? Okay, how many hours do you work? Are you going over 40 hours? How do they pay you for that time? You know, the thing that people come to you for is honestly, it feels like I could flip a coin, you know, and it's 50 50 whether the thing somebody comes to me for, if I'm able to help them, is even the thing that I'm able to, you know, if you come to me for harassment, come to me for a wage claim. No, I can't help you with that, but I can help you with this other thing. One thing I definitely ask about, which is kind of what you've alluded to to some degree as well, is what is kind of the end goal? You know, what are you hoping to accomplish here? What is the purpose? Because I think that can also really drive the conversation because then there can be other creative solutions that we'll kind of get to later that can be really valuable. And then I also will ask about covenants just so I can get a, get a sense of, you know, do they have a non-compete and non-solicit stuff that's going to prevent them from finding a new job as if they, because sometimes folks haven't been separated yet. If, if they haven't, then that's an important aspect to this. If they have, then it's a question of, you know, what else do we need to be negotiating? Right. I mean, I, my preference is almost always that somebody comes to me before they've actually been fired because chances are we're going to be in a much stronger position leverage wise if they still have that job. If you can get help early enough, you know, so Amit talked about, have you opposed anything? Have you complained? Have you, that matters a lot. If you're still at the job and you've complained and then your lawyer sends a letter sent it, and there's got to be a legal cause of action. Like we don't want to give you the perception that you get a lawyer, you send a letter automatically, you're going to get severance pay. It, it really doesn't work that way. And frankly, frequently it doesn't. Um, yeah. I get a lot of metaphorical fingers and sometimes literal ones too from attorneys. So yeah, it doesn't always work out. Yeah. I mean, in the pandemic in particular, we saw a lot of that where people were getting let go and we thought, man, this, this is kind of a borderline claim, but under some circumstances, companies will understand that the cheaper option is to let somebody go. But when they were laying people off left and right, it was sort of like, no, everybody's gone down with the ship. There's nobody's getting a claim here. I, and so, and I think another reason why um, having a conversation with someone while you're still employed, and when I mean someone, I mean, was an attorney, my goal really is to be pragmatic. And I think one thing we've alluded to this, but I haven't said it directly is I think both of us have the same thought process of we're not going to over promise and then under deliver. It's probably the opposite. So I'm not going to you know, promise someone I'm going to get them to California if I can't even get them to Naperville. And that's really important to me early on to be transparent about stuff like that. And so if someone is still working there, the advantage is they're still getting paid, especially if it is someone in a more financially precarious situation. And so a lot of times this can be a bridge to a new gig and we can kind of like put together a plan. So that's another reason why it's preferential. And even with more senior folks, it's still an opportunity because then they have more leverage to negotiate something before there's an exit. Right. I mean, you can take the stance with opposing counsel or the company. Look, it's pretty clear this isn't working out. We can kill each other or let's all sit down, put our egos aside and try to find a way that works for everybody 
to end this relationship that has clearly run its course, allow everybody to preserve some dignity and agency over how we end this and walk away rather than, you know, score some points for the sake of it, rip the bandaid off violently and ensure that the wound is way too bloody to, to tie up and, and clean up nicely. You know, there's no bandaid to fix it there. It ensures surgery will be required. It's another yep. mal- malapropism and mixed metaphor for me. <laughs> well, and look, candidly, there are times where there was surgery required. Both Max and I know that. But I think the, the key then is to have that conversation kind of early on so everyone knows what they're getting into. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is tying it back to the harassment that, you know, sometimes there are claims that are not strong enough for us to file a lawsuit on. And we'll tell clients that candidly, look, I can't go to war based on this alone. But let's say there are comments or things that have happened that are pretty un- unquestionably discrimination, you know, a really inappropriate sexual remark or racist remark, and the employee complains, but it's only one or two comments. I, I realize that may sound ridiculous, but the way these tests work, the courts even say, we're not here to police loose or stray remarks. That's the exact phrasing. So, but sometimes what will happen is that, and that comment will happen, the employee will complain, And once that complaint happens, you know, maybe you complain about the boss's kid or the wrong person and the relationship is just not fixable at that point. And it already starts to move in the wrong direction. Well, maybe that claim is not strong enough for us to all the way, you know, file a lawsuit on, but it is probably enough for us to send a letter basically confirming you've engaged in protected activity that if they fire you at this point, we're going to treat it as retaliation and that we should all essentially stop pointing the weapons at each other and find a way to negotiate a clean exit to the situation. Often that's why it's better for somebody to come to us first because the harassment claim is probably not gonna be enough, but once you've complained and that letter's in there, it's really hard for them to fire you because they know that will trigger litigation because then it will be a very cut and dry retaliation claim. Yep, and I mean, one thing we're missing from all of this too is the company wants something out of these agreements. Like a severance agreement isn't just a payment of money to an employee out of the goodness of the company's heart. They get a promise not to sue. They often get other um, language within these contracts as well. So for example, they may get non-disparagement language, a promise from the employee not to say anything negative about the company. That can be huge when you have online reviews where you're recruiting talent, et cetera. They may reaffirm certain covenants. So for example, a non-compete or a non-solicit. So these agreements get companies a lot as well. And so there is sometimes a mutual incentive to negotiate something, assuming everyone wants to, you know, put a bandaid on a situation as opposed to go into surgery. Right. I mean, you know, it's a way for companies to protect their customer base, for them to protect their employment, you know, their employee base so that there's not somebody poaching their workers, poaching their customers and bad mouthing them to the public at large. You know, it's a way for them to protect their reputation, for them to, remove a problem employee and a way for that employee, you know, from the other side of it to transition to their next stage of life. Okay. So, so going back to our initial conversation, then let's say there isn't much from a harassment standpoint. What are you thinking then in terms of of a wage standpoint, where can you as an attorney help an individual there? So what I want to know first is what have you been promised? Not what could you earn, but what is guaranteed to you? So if you are in sales or you've got commissions or targets to hit, have you hit those? Are you guaranteed that money? If they fire you without paying it, can I prove you were owed that money? That sort of thing. You know, we've had cases where we can't bring the harassment discrimination claim just because it's clear the client's view of it was one thing, but we don't 
we just don't think the evidence is there. But sometimes earned commissions haven't vested yet, but it's an easier way to sell to the company, look, this relationship isn't working, pay this person what they've already earned, or, but haven't been paid yet. And let's walk away that way. So, so do you have commissions coming to you? Do you have guaranteed paid time off that you've earned that has vested and that you have to be paid upon exit? Do you have any bonuses that you've earned and that you've done everything you need to get, but essentially keep the job? And I, one aspect of the wage laws that are really helpful for folks is the penalties are mandatory. So there can be individual liability, there can be interest, and there's attorney's fees, and all of that's mandatorily built into the statute. So that makes it a lot more beneficial for employees, and it's an easier process to navigate. So both Title VII and the Human Rights Act require folks to go through kind of an administrative process before they can file in court. And sometimes people don't want to file in court. The wage acts don't require that. There's a couple different acts. Some have shorter statute of limitations, some have longer, but you can do things at a much faster pace under the wage laws. Right. And when Amit says individual liability, what he means is essentially the owner of the company or the company officer who has essentially perpetrated this wrong against you, the person who has fleeced you of your money, if they're a decision maker, they can be on the hook for it. Now, practically speaking- And that's scary. Yeah. Nobody likes having their individual name on a lawsuit. It's a way that Amit and I will sometimes poke poke the other side in the eye with the stick. But there are reasons for it, right? Like, you know, it's a way to hold people accountable for this. Sometimes people- Sometimes people own small companies and they hide their money. And the only way to track it down is to name the individual person who's responsible. Well, and candidly too. So Justice Ginsburg had this great dissent in Epic Systems, which was the arbitration case from the Supreme Court. I want to say it was probably 2019, maybe 2018. But anyway, her dissent was basically spot on in the context of wage theft. It's really easy for a company to not pay its employees properly and take a couple bucks here or there because- What's someone going to do if they're owed, let's say, 500 bucks? That might be incredibly significant for that individual, but litigation can be slow, it can be expensive, et cetera. So the wage laws are supposed to kind of deter against that type of behavior. And that's why there is individual liability. You have, you don't want people at a management, upper management level to know that someone should be paid X amount and then take that away arbitrarily in violation of the law. So that is kind of the purpose behind some of these provisions. Right. And that's why, I mean, that case was about the right to have a class action brought. Can you waive that right? But that's why class actions exist too, because sometimes the amount of money, you know, $500 can be a lot of money to somebody. It's also worth about an hour of a lawyer's time, depending on the lawyer. So you can see how that might make it hard for a lawyer to bring a $500 lawsuit because the cost of filing the lawsuit is basically that much. Yeah. The filing fee typically could be that right. m- amount. And then that's just an hour of work. And it's not, it's going to require a lot more than an hour of work. So the whole point is to have built in perfect uh, protections to prevent that type of stuff. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And I think that was kind of Justice Ginsburg's point is that's why we need more class action. So you can band together 50 people who are all owed 500 bucks, but that's really the rationale for individual liability, mandatory fees. And that's why you can get a lot more bang for your buck than if there is a violation of the wage act. Well, and, and so to your question of, you know, what do you look for in these wages? I want to know where the violation happened too, because, you know, for example, Amit and I are uh, talking from the city of Chicago right now in different locations, you know, 
the Cook County and city of Chicago's respective minimum wage and overtime ordinances have really stiff penalties for overtime and minimum wage violations. They have trouble damages. That means basically triple the amount you're owed. So if somebody stiffs you 50 bucks, it's a $150 penalty just by snapping your fingers like that. And there are attorney's fees, meaning you you have the right, if you prevail, to have the other side pay for your lawyer's time rather than rather than you paying for it. In the Illinois minimum wage law, same token, it used to be 2% monthly interest penalties, but as of January 1st of 2020, it's now not only treble damages, but on top of that, there's 5% monthly interest penalties. You know, employers understandably don't love these laws or the penalties for them and will complain that they're really highway robbery. But the point, and I had a lawyer tell me that the other day, he said, what is the mafia controlling the legislature down there? And I said, you know what? There's a reason why that's there because we want to deter companies from not paying people properly. Yep. And I think the, the category of the, of the wage loss also matters. Is it they're not paying overtime or minimum wage, or is it they promise to pay a certain amount and they're not doing that? because that changes which of the wage laws apply. And so uh, I mentioned this earlier, one thing I'll look for too is if someone essentially is a whistleblower. And part of the reason I do that is because there's two types of claims. There's common law claims, which is just, you made a complaint to an employer because you thought they were doing something that could harm generally the citizens of Illinois. And so that can be kind of broad and it's kind of a reasonable person standard of would a reasonable person in this situation have that same belief. But there was a bunch of also statutes and acts that are in the same vein. There's a whistleblower act, which says, did you refuse to engage in illegal activity or did you make a report to the government? There's other protections under the Department of Labor. So for example, there's like an antitrust crime protection where if you report to your employer, hey, I think this is a criminal antitrust violation, there's protections. And the reason why that matters is because from a common law standpoint, you can get punitive damages and these acts independently have built in mandatory remedies again, because this is where Congress or the state legislature really wants to deter certain type of behavior. Right. And right. And that's important. And so, you know, you want to incentivize people reporting illegal conduct. And one of the key things that you have to keep in mind is you don't have to be right about that illegal activity. You need to be there. Now, there is some ambiguity that I've seen under certain provisions of the Illinois Whistleblower Act, but as a general matter, you could be at one of the big Supreme Court cases early on. I think it was the Kelsey versus Kmart case. I could be off. I think an employee saw another employee doing something funky with the cash register and thought it was theft. And it might have even been like a deal with the charity where they were giving some money. I don't remember the specifics. They may have been wrong about it. But the point is, you don't actually have to be right. And one of the things we'll hear in these whistleblower cases is the other side say, well, nothing illegal happened here. And the point is, it doesn't have to. The employee thought they saw something illegal and they reported it and you fired him for it or you demoted him for it. Yeah, you, you, if an employer reasonably believes something illegal is happening, that's going to harm citizens generally, or, you know, whatever the activity is, depending on the law, and you fire them for that, that's going to be a problem, for lack of a better term. It doesn't matter if something illegal was happening, as long as they legitimately or reasonably thought that something illegal was happening. Whistleblower claims like that are, are, are good. And there are a, a few other like federal and state remedies that are out there that I don't really ever practice in. But I know there's some sort of like an EPA whistleblower law that is out there floating around that I've never really had to think about. Yeah, I think mentally, the way I kind of characterize them is kind of there's industry specific whistleblower protection. So there's OSHA protections, etc. And they all have different timelines, too. So that's the one thing I think people have to be cautious about from a whistleblowing standpoint is the statute of limitations for each of these things can vary. And some of them are very quick because I think some OSHA requirements may be as quick as you have to file a complaint within 30 days of the activity. And so 
because of that, you know, you want to be cautious, both from an employee, but as an as an attorney too, to make sure you're not missing any deadlines. But common law retaliation has a long statute. And again, the remedies are good. So that's at least where I'm trying to initially focus a conversation on is various buckets of claims, and then also just like what the goal is and what are they trying to accomplish. One other claim I like to ask about is, did people get their benefits? Do they have employee benefits that they got from the employer? And there's one in particular that I want to just mention briefly, and that's COBRA. So if you get your health insurance from your employer, not every employer, there are certain size requirements and there are certain details to these claims. So I'm going to speak very generally about this, but generally... One of the things that every now and again happens, but I see it once every year, year or three, and it's usually not big companies that'll do this, but smaller to mid-sized companies will get themselves into trouble because they don't have as automatic an HR process as say like a Kmart, well, not Kmart, I don't even know if they exist anymore, but like Walgreens or- Man, we're dating you know, ourselves today. <laughs> dude, tell me about it. Or Blockbuster. No. I think there's one left. Is there really? I think in Alaska. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's an internet speed thing. It might just be a novelty thing at this point, but I think there was one left and it's the only one. I have so many questions. How I like how, a documentary on this? Like how old are the Blockbuster brand popcorn boxes they have there? Do they have any left? And like, have they had any new releases or movies added to it? Or do they have the same movie stable they had whenever Blockbuster went under? So we're going on a tangent here, but when I first started, I'm my, two of my favorite movies of all time are Rush Hour, the Rush Hour series and Bad Boys 2. So I would just hand out the DVDs for those movies to folks. And so I even have a bunch still left. The problem I realized in the last couple of years is no one has DVD players anymore. So Wait, like, did, well, you, did you work at Blockbuster? No, no. I just like as a friendly gift to people, I like to hand out a copy of these two movies and then I'll give out a copy of the book the winning brief by Brian Garner. It's kind of like a welcome package. And then sometimes I'll throw in the elements of style by Scrunk and Wright, because those I think are the best writing books. But anyway, I realized like last couple of years, no one has DVD players. So now I have a bunch of DVDs left over of these movies. They were super cheap off of Amazon to buy, but I have no one to give them to because no one has DVD players. That's a really fascinating novelty gift and activity, dude. It's like silver dollars or like $2 bills that you like have to special order from the bank. Yeah, exactly. Which my grandfather used to do, by the way. Anyway, all right, we've wasted enough time. So, so to circle back, Cobra, the reason I brought this up was because every now and again, a mid-sized, less organized employer will forget to tell somebody that they have the right to apply for Cobra when they fire them. And that's really important. And it's important because Congress decided whether or not you could actually afford to pay for the health insurance when you have a change in circumstance, the employer must notify you that you have the right to apply for that coverage. And if they don't tell you that they've, I won't go through all the mechanics, but basically after 44 days, if you have not gotten a letter in the mail telling you, you have a right to apply for COBRA every day after that, up until the statute runs out, because there is a cap on it, the penalties start to accrue and the penalties are up to $110 a day, up to not always, but up to, and you can have attorney's fees uh, covered. And then if you incur any medical expenses, which I've had clients who didn't know that their insurance had been covered and like went to the ER and got hit with a $10,000 bill or something that is all recoverable as part of that cause of action. So that, that one's one of my hail Marys. It's a, it's not a mistake. A lot of companies will make, but if there's no wage claim, there's no, I mean, I'll ask about it anyway, but if there's no wage claim, there's no discrimination claim. Maybe there's no biometric privacy claim. There's no whistleblower claim. I've exhausted everything else. My, that's one of my last asks is on the off chance you got your health insurance from your employer. If you did any chance they, they forgot to tell you, you had a right to Cobra. 
Yeah, I think that's smart. And I think that's kind of the gauntlet. But again, I just want to reiterate, at least from my standpoint, the biggest thing I'm trying to do in these conversations is just try to be understanding and listen as much as I can. Because even if there's no legal claim, the person on the other end of the phone is going through a very difficult situation. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you talked about expectations earlier. That does matter because sometimes people will have claims, but what they want, whether the terms of representation or their goals with it are just not realistic or, or maybe there is a lawyer who exists who can get them, but I know that I'm not going to be that person. You know, I've had people come to me who've got decent offers on the table for cases that are in the human rights commission, a place that I wouldn't normally litigate, but I'd maybe I'd get involved on a limited scope to help them just negotiate. But if what they're asking for, you know, and I think I remember one person saying they offered me 50 grand and I think that's insulting. And I'm like, and you made how much per hour and you worked there how long? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I wish you luck. I'm just not going to be able to get you the kind of money that you think you're entitled to because these cases just don't go for that. Yeah. I'm the same way. I'm not going to, I'm just not going to, I don't want to start the part, the relationship off on the wrong foot. And so early on, if the expectations are, you know, something I can't accomplish, then I'll just, you know, I'll be blunt with the person or the individual, the potential client, just say, you know, I wish you the best of luck, but you may want to talk to a couple of other attorneys to make sure you're working with someone you feel comfortable with. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the bottom line is sometimes people do just need to be heard. I mean, it doesn't feel good to hear that. Yeah, I was mistreated, but there's nothing that can be done, but sometimes every now and again, you'll have somebody talk to you and say, you know what, it just felt good to hear somebody at least listen and validate that I'm not crazy, that they probably were, you know, doing something bad to me. You know, and one of the first things I'll tell clients is I'll explain the at-will employment doctrine, unless it's a union employee coming to me. I'll tell them, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in employment law that are just patently and objectively unfair. They're not justified. They're not right. They're not the right way to treat somebody, but they may not be illegal or they may be illegal, but they've happened in a way where I just can't prove it. And sometimes people feel good, not good, but it's at least some form of validation to know that they're not crazy, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're not traditional divorce attorneys, but we are essentially divorce attorneys. The divorce is just between a big company or a small company and an an individual employee. Yeah. I mean, it's your job and it's the company's baby. Like these are, these are really emotional topics for everybody involved. Anybody who tells you that this stuff doesn't elicit emotion is lying to you because it does. So we don't have guests today to spring gotcha questions on, but for fun, let's, let's spring the shout out on each other. What do you got? I got you actually. So I just moved and Max sent me an awesome Alabama shirt that I'm wearing today for our zoom podcast episode. So I'm going to shout out Max. Oh, thanks. Got me. Now I have to, now I have to think of a way to shout out Amit. No, uh, no. You can't, you can't <laughs> I. That's why I went first. I'm going to shout out my daughter because uh, Daria, she is almost eight months old and she said Dada the last couple of weeks. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's so awesome. I'm going to shout her out for that. And my was wife. That be- was that before say? she said mama? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Well, it was my dad. It was my, my mom, my brother, uh, Debbie and I sitting around and she goes, Dada. And, and I'm like, Hey, she said it. And they're like, I don't know. She did, you know, does that really count? And then she said it a few more times. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm counting it. It counts. counts. And I'm, sh- and I'm shouting out my wife because she's an infinitely better parent than I am. And I just happen to get lucky. And my name is a little easier to say than mom. So I think the D sound is easier. So, all right, we got that out of the way. We suffered through our own shadows. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.